Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. We're going to be talking today about Jonah. Jonah's name means dove, as in the little bird that flies. And, uh, but, uh, and, and I've entitled it Jonah, the story of God who will, uh, who will not let go. You'll notice, and I put this in your notes in the left-hand column, in uh, that little passage from 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, most people think that the only place there is anything about Jonah is in the book of Jonah itself. And, uh, and also, of course, those references that Jesus makes to Jonah, which certainly lets us know that uh, Jonah was a, clearly a historical character. But what we discover in 2 Kings chapter 14 is that uh, Jonah had had a previously successful ministry to all the stuff that we're about to read uh, right here. Notice, let's just read this together. It says, he, and the referent there is to Jeroboam the first, who was, uh, I'm sorry, Jeroboam the second, who was a king of, uh, of, of Israel. It says, He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, don't get excited about all these geographical locations. The point is coming up that I want to make. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer was just about three miles north of, uh, of Nazareth. In fact, you're, if you will recall, there's one place in the Gospels where uh, the uh, Jesus critics speak to him and say, uh, search the scriptures, will any prophet arise out of Galilee? Well, that's certainly where Jonah came from, and he was from, uh, from Gath-Hefer. But the point that's being made that the, uh, that the uh, writer is giving us here in 2 Kings chapter 14 is that at least up till this point, Jonah had had a very successful prophetic ministry. He had said that some things were going to happen under the administration of King Jeroboam, and they had happened just exactly like Jonah had said. Uh, it, the land had been restored just as he had said. And that's the only thing that we know about Jonah up until the time of the book of Jonah itself. And remember, uh, when we come to the book of Jonah, if you'll remember in terms of the background of Jonah, this was a time when the, uh, when the Assyrians were, uh, the Assyrian Empire was very much at its zenith. And they were to the north of Israel and they were always creating problems for the Israelites. And in fact, uh, all the Israelites feared them and dreaded them because uh, the Assyrians were such a fierce people. Now, notice uh, as, the, as the story opens here in Jonah chapter 1, let's just read a little bit and see what we can discover. Uh, if you look at the four chapters of Jonah, you can see that uh, he talks, we're going to see first of all Jonah as an unprofitable prophet. Then we'll see him in chapter 2 as a praying prophet, in chapter 3 as a profitable prophet, and then in chapter 4 as a pouting prophet. Uh, 
and, uh, and so we want to talk about that and we want to draw some application for ourselves in, term of, in terms of God's providence and uh, his providential care for his people. Jonah chapter 1, and we're looking at uh, Jonah as the unprofitable prophet. Verse 1, the word of the Lord, now notice again there that the word Lord is in all caps. Now what does that indicate? That's right, this is the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh, this is I am who I am. So when you find it in the Old Testament that, you know, it's uh, sometimes you'll see it uh, written this way as caps and lowercase. That's usually the word Adonai, which means master or sir. Uh, sometimes this word is even used of human beings in the Old Testament. But any time in the Old Testament, it's in all caps like that. That's the, that's the covenant name of God, the name Yahweh. Sometimes the old American Standard Version translated that as Jehovah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, uh, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, remember, was the capital of Assyria. And remember, Assyria was the fierce empire that was just creating problems for everybody in, the, uh, in that big neighborhood there. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And incidentally, they were a very wicked, vile people. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of idolatry among the Assyrians, but they were a very, very fierce people. One of the things that we were talking about just before the, uh, the study began, uh, uh, Sarah was sharing that she had uh, seen the movie uh, Pearl Harbor this, uh, this weekend and asking some questions about why certain cultures still uh, do terrible things like sticking bamboo shoots under people's fingernails to get them to reveal things. Well, that's the kind of people that the Assyrians were. They would very often, when they took captives, uh, they would skin their captives alive, and the captive who stayed alive the longest, uh, that person won the, uh, won the contest. I mean, just awful kinds of things. I'm glad nobody brought their lunch with them today. So the word is, now incidentally, if we were to draw our little uh, map up here, and uh, let's see, I'll just draw uh, sort of a, a semi-map. We'll let this little circle represent the Sea of Galilee, and that's the Jordan River, and here's the Dead Sea. This will be the uh, shoreline, uh, the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Uh, this would be Turkey up in this area, Egypt down here. This would be the, uh, the land of Israel. Nineveh would be about 500 miles to the, uh, to the northeast. Gath-Hefer was, uh, was in the area of Galilee up here. That's where uh, Jonah was from, was, uh, was the little city of Gath-Hefer, as we saw. So instead, uh, the instructions are clear. What you're to do, Jonah is you're to go 500 miles approximately to the northeast and preach to the Ninevites. Now, what does Jonah do? Well, it tells us here. It says, verse 3, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now, where is Tarshish? Well, Tarshish is all the way at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea. You remember down here in this area, there's the, uh, the Iberian Peninsula, Spain is on the, uh, on the eastern side, and uh, what is modern-day Portugal is on the, uh, on the western side, and Tarshish was, uh, was on that western side. And that was essentially the, sort of the end of the world. So the idea 
is uh, Jonah wants you to go 500 miles to the northeast and talk to the, preach to these folks who are in just thorns in the side of Israel, who are Israel's enemies. And Jonah essentially says, no thanks, I'm going to go 3,000 miles due west to Tarshish because I am not interested in going to a place like that. Now let's see what happens. Notice it says he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. Joppa is a little uh, seaport city here, uh, here in Israel. And uh, so he makes it down to Joppa. And he found a ship bound for that port. Bound for what port? Tarshish, right. Uh, after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, this is, this is fascinating. Because what you discover, uh, this is a great picture of sin. What jo Jonah's from gath Hefer, and it says he goes down to Joppa, he goes down to the ship, eventually he goes down into the hold of the ship, and eventually he goes down to the uh, bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. That's the way sin always takes us. It takes us down every step of the way. Now, and it says that his whole purpose in doing this is what? To flee from the Lord. Now, how, how effectively can we flee from the Lord? You can't. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. If I, if, I, if I make my bed over here, even there your spirit will find me. There's no getting away from the Lord. So, and I, there's, it's clear that I think that Jonah realizes that, and yet his intent, and we will see this, is that not only is Jonah a prophet, but Jonah is also a patriot. And the last thing that Jonah wants to see happen is for God to show mercy on these Ninevites and to save them. What, God, what Jonah wants God to do is to nuke the Ninevites. He wants to get rid of these people because they're such a thorn in the, uh, in the side of the, uh, uh, the Israelites. In fact, if you skip down, uh, it's on the second side of your notes, to Jonah chapter 4, uh, notice chap uh, verse 2 of Jonah chapter 4 where it says, He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Notice, Jonah's problem was not that he didn't know God. Jonah's problem was that he knew God real well, but he was out of touch with God's heart because God planned to show mercy to these Ninevites, and Jonah didn't want God showing mercy to these Ninevites. Incidentally, I think an application that we can draw immediately right here in chapter 1 is, uh, is that we need to beware of, uh, beware of the danger of letting circumstances guide us. Think about it. God says, go northeast, and Jonah says, no, I think I'll go in the opposite direction. He gets down to the seashore, and what does he find waiting for him right there at the dock? A ship that's going where he wants to go. He looks in his pocket and he pulls out his bag and he opens it up and guess how much money he's got? He's got enough money to pay the fare. Thank you, Jesus. I've got just enough to, to pay my way over there. Now, 
So we can't always depend on our circumstances. In fact, obviously, he is uh, doing exactly the opposite of what God told him to do. Uh, Also, for those of you who were here, let's see, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Moses and we talked about Pharaoh, uh, this is a this is a good uh, I think uh, correlation to that story as well. Jonah paid the fare himself. Did he ever get where he wanted to go to Tarshish? No, he did not. And he never got his money back for not getting there. But when you look at the story of Moses, remember Amram and Jochebed, and how Jacob, how they Amram and Jochebed, the uh, the parents of Moses, constructed the little. Uh, little basket, uh, coated it with pitch and tar inside and out to make it waterproof, put the baby Moses in there, placed it among the reeds in just the right spot so that, uh, so that Pharaoh's uh, daughter would find the baby. And when Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby, Moses' older sister Miriam is watching over there to see what's going to happen to the baby. And she comes running over there to Pharaoh's daughter and says, Princess, would you like for me to get one of the Israelite women to nurse this baby for you? Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Well, who do you think she's going to get? Is the baby's mom. That's right, Moses' mom. And not only that, but Moses' mom is paid to nurse her own child. Now, notice, when you're doing what God wants you to do, God sees to it that you get exactly where you're supposed to go, and God pays the bills for getting there. But if you're trying to get away, you don't get where you think you'd like to go, and you wind up paying the bills yourself. I think that's a great application to draw right here from, uh, from, from the first few verses. Now, we begin to see the providence of God in action. God's plan is for Jonah to go where? To Nineveh. Jonah's wanting to go the other way. Now, in the good providence of God, he loves his prophet, even though his prophet is being disobedient. So he's going to bring this prophet back where he should be. Now, if you and I were God, and thank God none of us are, if you and I were God, what we'd do is we'd just, uh, we'd just let him get out here in the middle of the Mediterranean, let that great big fish eat him, and say, well, that's that. Let's just get somebody else to take care of this. But that's not the way God works. God loves and cares for his people, and the wonderful message of Romans 8:29. Those whom God has predestined, uh, foreknown he also predestined, whom he's predestined, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. As surely as God starts off with us, he brings us safely home. So let's see what happens. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Notice this wasn't the devil stirring up the water. This was the Lord himself. It's like a typhoon apparently out there the lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up all the sailors were afraid now are sailors accustomed to seeing storms at sea so this was apparently a very unusual storm it was a storm of such enormity that uh, that even the sailors who were accustomed to all this were fearing for their lives and each cried out to his own God. Now, what does this tell us about sailors since they were crying out to their own gods? They're pagans. That's right. These weren't Israelites. These were pagans. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now, notice, notice again, here's, here's another application we can draw. 
Sometimes we think that when we sin, our sin only affects us and our relationship specifically to God. But notice in this case, here's one man's sin who's decided he knows better than God, that he wants to be more of a patriot than he does a prophet, and he, as he goes in the opposite direction, his sin not only affects him adversely, but it also affects this crew adversely. It, first of all, it, they're all very afraid. Secondly, there's tremendous financial loss as all these people who had, who had uh, paid passage for their goods to get over here to Tarshish where it could be bought and sold, uh, now they're out all of this money because uh, all of that stuff's been tossed in the drink just trying to keep the, uh, this little ship afloat. So uh, it says, notice uh, what Jonah's doing all this time, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now, how do you sleep in the middle of a storm? Well, there he is, sound asleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? He got the same question I do. Get up and call on your God. In other words, we've been calling on all ours, and it sure hadn't done anything for us. How about calling on yours? Well, let's cover all the bases. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we'll not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. Anytime something goes wrong, what's the first thing we want to know? Whose fault is this? That, wh why am I in this situation that I'm in? Who is responsible for all this? So that's what they want to know. They cast lots. That was sort of like uh, throwing dice. Remember Proverbs 16:33. Uh, says the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing of is from the Lord. Uh, the, uh, one of the modern translations say, men throw dice, God makes the spots come up. And that's what happens right here. It says they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they ask him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? Well, good night. I thought that's what you cast lots for. But they, I guess they didn't want to jump to conclusions. Who's responsible? What, what do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And apparently, very calmly, he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Well, we got the right one. This terrified them. So, they were terrified when he said who he was. Now, why were they terrified? Well, let's keep reading. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? And notice parenthetically what Jonah relates to us. They knew he was running away from the Lord. Why? Because he had already told them so. I mean, is this a guy who just all of a sudden decides, uh, you know, just has a little fleeting tinge of fear and runs in the other direction? Absolutely not. This is willful knowing disobedience against the Lord. And yet, what we're going to see is, is God deal with this, uh, with, this, with this man. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Notice, he's got a death wish here. I, all I want to do is get out of this. I'd rather, I'd rather go on and be with the Lord than I had to go up here to Nineveh and preach to those folks and see God have mercy on that bunch of Gentiles because all they're going to do is bring grief to Israel. 
says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Again, we see the effects of our own personal sin in the lives of other people. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they, why, why would they do that? Why, why do you suppose they wouldn't just say, you want to get thrown overboard? Suits me. And just toss him into the drink. Instead, you know, they're out there working the oars, trying to, trying to get, why? I'd have thrown him overboard right then. Why do you think they wouldn't? Maybe that was it. Maybe there were pangs of guilt. After all, he was a Hebrew, and this God that he worshipped was the God of the land and the sea. Maybe that had something to do with it. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. You can imagine the, just the tremendous swells that were out there. Then they cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. And that's a real significant statement. You, Lord, have done as you have pleased. That is the sovereignty of God. God does not have to explain to any of us why he does any of the things that he does. He does what he wants to, when he wants to, where he wants to, how he wants to, and he does it exceptionally well. That's the sovereignty of God. We don't always understand it, but it's nevertheless true. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. All right, so here it is, the huge swells. They've thrown everything overboard except Jonah, practically, trying to keep the boat afloat. It looks like they're about to be swamped, and they finally say, well, I guess that's the only thing left to do. So they take Jonah and toss him across the gunwale, and as he goes under the water, what happens to the sea? All of a sudden, it just turns into almost glass out there. Say, man, this is not the way storms operate normally. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. Notice, feared Yahweh, the true God. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, you ever heard of foxhole conversions? Yeah, that's not what this is. A foxhole conversion is you find yourself in a bind and you say, oh God, if you'll just get me out of this, I promise I'll do this, that, and the other. That's not the case here. God had already gotten them out of it. That, that sea was like glass out there. Everything was calm, and the result was they were so impressed with the power of this true God, the power of the God of this prophet, that then they made sacrifices, and then they made vows, even though they were safe at that point. It's interesting that the one thing that Jonah is trying to do is the last thing he wants God to do is save these Gentiles from Nineveh. But God's already just saved some Gentiles uh, who, were, uh, who were the, uh, the crew on this ship right here. Uh, God does what he wants to. Notice, here we see the second, uh, second major providential act. The first one was this great sea that got Jonah out there in the drink. And so here's Jonah. He's just thrown overboard do you think he was just, he just happened to be thrown overboard at just any particular spot in the Mediterranean? Oh, no. There was a special reason 
while the crew rowed as long as they could, trying to get a little further, and they couldn't get any further. And there was a reason that the ship was blown off course. It was all blown to exactly the right spot at exactly the right time when a huge fish would appear at exactly that same, well, not appear on the surface, but would be there. Notice the last verse. We see that second really providential act, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. See, Jonah's problems are really just starting, aren't they? Uh, how'd you like to be a fish lunch? And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. And again, this is a wonderful example of, uh, of our Lord Jesus. Remember they said, uh, said, how about giving us some sort of proof that you are who you said you are? And he said, look, the only proof going to be given to you is the proof of Jonah the prophet. And apparently they sort of scratched their head and looked at him with some sort of incredulity. And he said, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so also must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. This is a picture of Christ's death and subsequent resurrection. Jonah 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. What else would you do? If you were inside a huge fish, what would you be doing right now? You know, you've just been saying, just throw me over the gunwale, I'm, I'm ready to go. And you find yourself inside a huge fish, and uh, all of a sudden you start praying. I'm sure it's dark inside there. You can't read your Torah anymore. You can't read your Psaltery. But it's amazing that as you read these uh, verses, and most of them are quotations from the Psalms, you discover that Jonah just quoted psalm after psalm after psalm about the salvation of the Lord and the mercy and the, uh, uh, the graciousness of the Lord. It's interesting that what Jonah was looking for was for God to have mercy on him, but he wasn't interested in God having mercy on these Ninevites up here. He said in verse 2, he said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help. And you listen to my cry. Notice verse 3, please. You see him pleading pleading with the Lord, but you see his perspective has changed in verse 3. He says, You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. Who hurled him? I thought we just read that the sailors threw him overboard. But what is it that Jonah's saying? Jonah's saying, Lord, I realize that it was you that you're the one who's in control of this situation, that you're the one who is really is the one who threw me over the gunwale. All your waves and breakers swept over me. That's a picture of, of, as it were, the judgment of God. And again, he just quotes from psalm after psalm uh, as, he, uh, as he prays to God. And then in verse 9, But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, that, now, this is fascinating, especially what Jonah says. He says, I thank you, and I sing praise to you, and I'm going to sacrifice to you, and what I have vowed I will make good. Now, what was, what, was the, what was the purpose of a prophet? What was it that a prophet did? Yeah, he prophesied. He was one who spoke forth for God. A prophet is one who speaks forth 
on the behalf of God. Well, what had God told him to do? He said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to those folks. Uh, and after all, Jonah's a prophet. His commitment is to the Lord to do what God has told him to do. So when he says, I will do what I have vowed to do, essentially what was he saying? I'll go. I'll go to Nineveh. I'll tell you what, that's what I'd have said too. Now, his mind, uh, certainly his, uh, his, his direction has changed, but we have to ask ourselves, has his attitude really changed? And I think that will become clear as we read a little bit further. But it's interesting that as soon as he repents, if he genuinely repented, remember that in the, uh, that, uh, uh, in the, in the Bible, the word repent The word repent means to change your mind. Now, if your mind genuinely changes, what happens to your behaviors? They change too. You can change your behaviors without changing your mind. Uh, behaviorists do that all the time. But what happens is, that's, that's the reason in Ephesians it says, put off the old self, the old way of doing things, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Repent. Change your way of thinking about this. Then put on the new self. Put on that new personality. Do what God has called you to do. So the question is, did Jonah really change his mind? And we'll see if we can answer that uh, as we get a little further along. It says, the Lord commanded the fish. It vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now can you imagine, uh, we don't know who was here on the beach that day whenever that whale beached itself. And all of a sudden it kind of goes like that, and the next thing you know, Jonah kind of rolls out in some, in some whale vomit. We don't know what he looked like, but anyway, that must have been quite a sight. And I'm sure his first question was, if anybody was around, can any of you point me in the direction of Nineveh? Because that would have been my question, which, which way is northeast, because that's the way I want to go. All right, so he's on his way. Jonah chapter 3. <clears throat> so we've seen him as an unprofitable prophet. Then we've, Now we've just seen him as a praying prophet. Now we want to see him as a profitable prophet. Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Notice, God is the God of the second chance, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. Peter said, Lord, you sure need to keep your eye on these other guys, but I'll tell you what, I will never deny you. In fact, I am ready to lay down my life and die for you. And within a matter of hours, what was Simon Peter doing? I don't know this guy, and in fact just uh, punctuated it with all kinds of profanity. I don't know who this person is. And the rooster crows, and one of the gospel writers tells us that the Lord looked at him, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. And yet, when we come to John chapter 21, we see Peter, who has apparently given up the disciple business and gone back to fishing, trying to do something he knows how to do. And he's fished all night with six of his buddies, hadn't caught a blooming thing. And Jesus is over there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, cooking breakfast for him. And he talks with Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Three times he asks him. Interesting interchange that takes place. 
But the point is, is that Jesus restores him to his apostleship, even though he had done the very thing that he swore he would never do. Here's God with Jonah. The word came to him a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Has God changed to plan B? No, no, no. God's still on plan. God does not have plan B. God only has plan A, and if you are the sovereign of the universe, you don't need plan B because you're always going to work things after, the, after your will, and you're always going to cause things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. They may not like it, but it's going to work out. Uh, and then verse 3 says, Jonah obeyed the word and went to Nineveh. That is, he went there physically. His body took him there. But what we discover is that perhaps his mind, uh, at least his, uh, the real desire of his heart, was not there. He goes and he just preaches and preaches. The Lord tells him, preach in 40 days. Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, Jonah sure didn't have any trouble preaching that. He thought that was a great message to preach. He said it took him three days to get through Nineveh and all of its environment. It was kind of like, uh, kind of like modern-day Atlanta today. It was a, it was a huge city of uh, several million people. So Jonah's proclaiming this proclamation. In 40 days, uh, the Lord is going to rain down fire. 40 days, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. And guess what happens when he preaches? Do you remember the story? All of a sudden, the Spirit of God begins to work, and from the king of Nineveh all the way down to the lowest servant, wherever it was, and even the animals themselves, there was repentance among all the human beings. They were putting on sackcloth and ashes and even putting sackcloth on the animals. They were not eating. They were not drinking. And the king of Nineveh was saying, perhaps God will have mercy on us. Perhaps God will have mercy on us. And there's just a tremendous turning to God among the residents of Nineveh. Now, if you're a prophet, you're a preacher, and you're out preaching, and you just preach to a whole bunch of folks for the last three days, and all of a sudden it looks like practically everybody in the whole city has turned to God, what kind of response is that going to evoke in you? You think you'd be happy or sad? Yeah, look what God has done. This is wonderful. Well, notice verse 10 of Jonah 3. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And this is not God changing his mind. This is God acting consistently with his nature. When we demonstrate repentance, God has mercy. That's clear throughout the scriptures. But notice, you think, now Jonah's got to be happy now about what's going on. Now remember, he was not only a prophet, he was also a patriot, and he still didn't have this squared around. Jonah 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Why was he angry? I'll tell you why he was angry. That's right. He was angry because God had shown mercy to these Ninevites. He was ready for mercy for himself, but he didn't want God showing mercy to anybody else. Only the Israelites ought to get the mercy of God. They're the ones who deserved mercy. But now you tell me, who among us, who among any of us, deserves God's mercy? The answer is zero. Zero. 
People ask me, Bradshaw, how you doing? I say, much better than I deserve. Because if God gave me what I deserve, it'd be a one-way ticket to the pit. I'm looking for grace and mercy every day. Jonah hadn't dealt with that yet. He's distressed. He's angry. reason he's angry is because his goal has been blocked. And his goal is that God would destroy these people up here. And instead, God's done just exactly the opposite of that. These folks are going to be around for another generation. Now, later on, when Nahum comes along, Nahum's going to prophesy there's not going to be any repentance then, and God is going to bring judgment on these folks. But that's another generation or so away. Verse 2, Jonah 4. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God, you're just so merciful. This is the reason I was going the other way. I don't want you to show mercy on these people. And notice he is so embittered. Notice what he says in verse 3. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied. Now, interesting. What God, you know, at this point, again, if I were God, and all of you just thank God I'm not, but if I were God and we'd gotten to this point, I'd said, that's it. That's it. I don't care who we're going to get. We're going to get somebody else. I'm just, I'm going to French fry you right now. But that's not the way God works. God is just so gracious and so merciful. There's nothing that we ever do that ever surprises him. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows when he saves us, he's not getting a bargain. Oh, the compassion of our Savior. The Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? And the real question that God is asking, as we'll see, is which one of us is right, Jonah? And notice, Jonah does not even have the courtesy to respond to his master, to God at this point. In fact, it says, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city, that is, east of Nineveh, there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. You know, God's just had mercy on all these people. Jonah's real displeased. And God comes along and says, do you have any right to be angry over this? And Jonah apparently misinterprets God's overtures toward him. And what he does is he goes outside of the city. Now, do you think there's anything for Jonah to do inside the city? Oh, yeah. There's all kind of follow-up he can be doing. He can be telling these folks, teaching them about the true God, but instead, what's Jonah doing? He's gone outside of the city. He's built himself a little shelter. He's sitting under the shelter doing what? Waiting for what? Waiting to see what would happen to the city. His, he's still hoping for what? that God's going to nuke them. You know, maybe God will feel sorry for me now because he knows I'm pretty ticked about this. Ah. Then the Lord God, no, he's become a spectator essentially. He's quit and become a spectator. Then the Lord God, notice again, the provision of God. Here we see the providence of God. The Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. The only time the word happy appears in the book of Jonah 
has to do with his own comfort. He was happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Uh Uh-oh, here's that providence of God again. Which chewed the vine so that it withered. And then another thing about the providence of God. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Here comes a Scirocco blowing. The shade is gone. The vine's all withered up over here. There's no shade over his head. And the next thing you know, this Scirocco just starts to blow and just starts drying him out. So he'd be like a withered up gourd himself. God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. What is wrong with this person? He is just so intent on having his own way. And yes, 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 I want to enjoy the grace and the mercy of God for myself, but I do not want anybody else to get it. They don't deserve it. Hey, Jonah, we don't deserve it either. But God said to Jonah, and he, this is his second question, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And notice he finally responds to God, I do. He, and you can just hear him saying it through clenched teeth. I do, he said, I'm angry enough to die. Notice, he's filled with prejudice. He's filled with self-pity. He's pitiful over the plant. He's pitiful over his situation. He's pitiful over himself. He's pitiful over everything except the one thing that God's pitiful over. And that is the spiritual condition of all these people in Nineveh. Boy, now this guy's a prophet and yet he's out of touch with God. I do, he said, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine though you didn't tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left. That would be either children and infants, imbeciles, whatever. And with with a city that had that many children and imbeciles, it's got to be a multi-million uh, populous city that can't tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? He said, well, now where's the next verse? Not another verse. So, well, did Jonah get it straight? We don't know. Some people say, you know, Jonah got it straight. That's the reason he wrote that, but that's not in the Scriptures. But what's the point that God's making here? Hey, Jonah, you're concerned about the plant. The plant is temporal. I'm concerned about people, and people are eternal. And you really see a, a, a contrast between the, the prejudice of Jonah and the pettiness of Jonah and the great pity of God over people who don't know him. Well, what do we conclude from this in our last couple of minutes together? I put some uh, applications in there, and I'll let you read most of them, but I'll mention a couple of them. First of all, there's no substitute for present obedience. Remember when we started, we saw that Jonah had had a previously successful prophetic ministry. And we need to ask ourselves, are we living in obedience to God right now, or are we simply living 
with memories of how we used to obey God. Genuine obedience should spring not from a sense of duty, but out of a sense of devotion and delight for what God has done for us in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I delight to do Thy will, O my God, is what our Savior said. And then secondly, God is certainly going to accomplish His purposes regardless of our obedience. Nothing, 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 nothing can frustrate the plan and purpose of God. And as I've noted there in your notes in chapters 1 and 2, God worked in Jonah before He worked through Jonah. In chapter 3, He worked in spite of Jonah. And in chapter 4, even with all of Jonah's disobedience, God is still working with him, patiently loving, caring for him, bringing him to where God intended for him to be. How different is our Lord Jesus who compared what Jonah had been through with his own experience that was coming up and how he was obedient to death, even the death of a cross, for the sake of the Father and for the sake of the people for whom he would lay down his life. God is faithful and compassionate and his goodness and his mercy follow his people all the days of their lives. I'm reminded of this old hymn, and I'm not going to sing, by Charles Wesley. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What an amazing Savior we serve. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.